If you like what you're hearing on the Security Ledger podcast, consider subscribing to one of our newsletters like The Daily Ledger or The Weekly Ledger. You can learn more and sign up at securityledger.com slash subscribe. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast, number 112, we all know that Internet of Things ecosystems are complex, and that makes them harder to secure. The Internet Society's Online Trust Alliance thinks it has an answer with their new program, Get IoT Smart. In our second segment, we'll talk with OTA director Jeff Wilbur about that. But first, 20 years ago, security-minded folks found and reported vulnerabilities in software like Microsoft Windows just for kicks, or maybe as a public service. Today, the best bug hunters in the world can make upwards of a million dollars a year for their discoveries. What's changed? Well, for one thing, bug bounty programs. They've sprouted like dandelions in the last 10 years and can direct six-figure payouts to researchers who dig up the most serious holes in common platforms. But what does it take to be a great bug hunter? We invited Jason Haddix, the vice president of trust and security at the bug bounty hosting firm BugCrowd, into the Security Ledger Studios to talk about what's happening on the bug bounty scene and whether, given the big paydays, bug hunting is drawing more interest as a profession. Before he joined BugCrowd, Haddix was one of the site's top-ranked bug hunters. To start off, I asked him to talk about a new effort BugCrowd launched to increase the number of vulnerability researchers, something they call BugCrowd University. I'm Jason Haddix, and I'm the VP of Trust and Security at BugCrowd. So BugCrowd University... Uh, is an education-based course that we launched. And, and what we did was, um, you know, when we break down our crowd into skill levels, we have a couple different skill levels. Those are, who are super advanced, those who are in the medium part of the pyramid or, or triangle um, that are getting there but not quite there yet. And then we have a whole bunch of newcomers, which are students, usually QA engineers, developers moving into security or, or people moving from other vocations into security who are interested in using Bug Bounty as their catapult into this awesome career, right? And we we have a giant shortage of people in in security that usually gets thrown around a lot it's actually we have a giant shortage of qualified people um in in information security so what we wanted to do is you know at the end of the day we're trying to get more awesome researchers on the platform and um and we had been thinking and kicking around the idea of doing an education curriculum for a long time and uh, we were going out to conferences like defcon and black hat and all of the 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 regional uh, security conferences, and I was giving a talk called the Bug Hunters Methodology. Uh, I'm a researcher myself, and uh, it was my methodology and how I do reconnaissance, how I break down an application, what tips and tricks I have for, you know, injection testing and authorization testing, and all the different domains inside of testing over my kind of tenure and career. And so. Eventually, this presentation got too big for any given one conference slot, which is usually like 45 minutes of speaking or something like that. And so we had been kicking around the idea, well, let's break it up into modules and launch it as like a free video e-learning course that BugCrowd could give open source to anyone. And so what we did is at the same time, we created uh, BugCrowd University and the BugCrowd Ambassador Program. So our idea here is uh, we've modularized that training and uh, provided labs for it and instructions on how to use it. We've also provided 
a ton of auxiliary videos that match the topics as well through the researcher conferences that we hold called Level Up. And then we've also uh, identified about eight to 10 ambassadors all over the world for Bug Crowd to take this, what we open source, and to bring it to groups that are non-traditionally security people. So basically uh, developer groups, Linux group, you know, any type of meetup you can think of that's local to your area to bring a security topic, a one-day consumable security topic to these people. So that was getting the bottom part of that triangle. Students and, uh, and QA and developers up into the mid-tier of the triangle. There's also a section of BugCrowd University, which is topics that bring our mid part of the triangle up to our high part of the triangle, which is you know bugs that are common for our uh, elite researchers that they find, bringing in those skills and that training to everybody on the platform as well. So those are things like authorization bugs and access control bugs and, and things like that. And so we developed a set of modules for that demographic as well. And so it's been met with pretty good success. Um, you know, There's not a ton of open source training out there there that uh, people provide in the community. So we've had a lot of educational institutions come to us wanting to integrate BugCrowd University into their AppSec classes, or if they don't have any, you know, undergrads, like you said, don't have a lot of options to learn AppSec, especially practical, um, real world kind of security skills and assessment. And uh, so a lot of people are taking this content and building courses around it. And uh, we're really excited about, about all of that. Is this really, as you said, more for that company that is looking to build this capability within its own uh, application team, application development team, or application security team, or kind of for the uh, person who might be looking to sort of level up their career or even get into a new line of work uh, as a bug hunter? It can be for either. Honestly, the skills are security skills, right? So if you have a pen tester or a red teamer um, that's on your staff, uh, they can learn these you can learn from these modules and uh, they'll directly benefit their their day-to-day -day job. The topics that we release are basically tailored to bugs that our bug hunters find often. And so they're immensely more useful to a bug hunter though, I think, because uh, when you're in a, a bug bounty program or you're, you're hacking as part of crowdsourced security or something like that, um, you have to effectively use your time very wisely because you're hunting against, you know, maybe tens or hundreds of other hackers. Um, and so some of these topics uh, you prioritize first uh, because they're worth the most and, um, and you want to you know, focus on what you're good at. So the modules really help anyone who's looking into getting into security assessment. Um, but we're hoping that it really levels up some subsections of our crowd. I mean, what are the biggest obstacles for people, even if you've got a background in application development, to the type of work that vulnerability researchers do? I think the assumption is often, you know, these are people who have a natural affinity for puzzles and puzzle solving or poking holes in things. And um, these are not translatable skills. You know, it's kind of either you got it or you don't. I, I actually agree that that's, that's kind of an assumption that a lot of people think of. But honestly, some of the best hackers I know are developers, right? They there's no better way to hack a system or um, a network than knowing exactly how it was put together and what the deep, dark secrets are. Um, so uh, a lot of the people that I see be really successful are people who uh, who know how to code, who know the underlying languages that the sites are built in, who can get really deep into maybe misconfigurations um, and things like that. So a development background actually helps uh, immensely in bug hunting. And getting the puzzle solving piece, well, if you're a developer, you're puzzle solving in a way to build something. As a hacker, you're puzzle solving in a way to break something, and they're not that far apart. So really, when I talk to developers, it's just a tiny bit of a mind shift to, to get there. But there are some core concepts in security assessment that you know you, you kind of have to learn, and most of those can be taught, right? It's all user input that eventually makes its way into 
uh, applications can be bad. And that's the basis for, I think, about 85% of all vulnerabilities that end up on, on websites. And, uh, and so learning how to exercise these vulnerabilities and learning how to exploit them is usually the part where you know, those people from uh, development or QA basically don't have a lot of experience with. So you spend a lot of time not explaining the core fundamentals of how the bug works, because that comes to them very naturally, but just about how to exploit them and what tools are used to do such things um, and how to spot the input points to where these flaws actually get exploited. I mean, I ask you this, you yourself were the former or have been a, a, a top ranked or the top ranked bug hunter on the bug crowd platform, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, in 2014 and 2015, um, I was ranked number one um, at, at different portions in the year, battled back and forth with a couple of really, really great testers. And then eventually BugCrowd asked me to come uh, work for them and train their triage validation. Uh, I've currently top 20, so still, still quite up there, still hunt in my spare time. But uh, these days I'm more focused on uh, education than anything else, really trying to bring those skills to uh, to other people. But yeah, I mean, uh, bug hunting for me started, you know, when I was at HP as the director of penetration testing there, and I led a pen test group, and I helped design methodology for um, that pen test group. And, uh, you know, my impetus at first was, oh, this sounds like a cool thing that's happening. Um, you know, Casey, who was our, who was our founder and CTO now, uh, sent out a blast email of the first bounty program and said, you know, I'm doing this thing. It's a little crazy. It's not moonlighting uh, officially. You know, we pay you through PayPal. There's going to be other hackers on the project. It's first, first come, first serve, first defined, first paid. And uh, and then there's this leaderboard that we have that um, will allow you to compare your skills to other hackers. And that was actually, you know, the money was kind of cool, but uh, that was the point that I focused on was because uh, there was no other way to objectively rate yourself against other other hackers. And so. You know, I wanted to see, you know, how good I was, if I needed improvement, where I needed improvement. Um, and so I, I started hacking on the bug bounties. And uh, honestly, it gets pretty addicting once you start. It's, you know, it's fun to see new targets come in and out through bug bounty. It's always fun to find bugs, whether you're doing bug bounty or, or pen test or something like that. You know, the competitive aspect was, was really fun. And the auxiliary money aspect was also really fun for me as a security person. Do you mind if I ask you how much you made at the height of doing it? So in the early days, the payouts were not were not great. We've we've worked a lot at BugCrowd to try to increase the the payouts for um, for what the expectation of a bug is worth. So in the first year, I don't think I made more than I think like 40k, I believe, which is not a lot of money uh, yeah. for a professional. Nowadays, we have researchers pulling in a million a year, so it definitely wow. has matured. I mean, um, I run an AppSec course with uh, some veteran students of mine on the side, completely unrelated to anything else, and um, trying to get them spun up in application security. And as a group, we were able to pull in that amount of money in one month as a class. So it's definitely changed over the years, a lot more money in it now. Yeah. Wow. That is unbelievable. As you look at it, what types of vulnerabilities are you and your team finding now as opposed to maybe when you started back in 2014? Has the nature of the work uh, or the types of things you're finding and the types of tasks you're being asked to do changed much? Um, you know, there still exists a lot of the very common OWASP top 10 vulnerabilities. It depends on the target and the company that you're doing the bounty for. So some are very forward platforms, right? And very narrow scope, meaning they have one site that they want you to test and it's using a probably a framework or fully up to date, you know, uh, web server software that mitigates a lot of the older type attacks like cross-site scripting or SQL injection or things like that, which are core common AppSec flaws. 
Now, if you're facing one of those companies, you look for things like bugs that don't have a framework or don't have something that a framework can protect against. One of the most common ones is insecure direct objects references, access control bugs. And what these look like is uh, very simple mistakes people can make when trying to reference someone's data or accounts. And so you see a URL go by that says security ledger slash orders uh, slash user equals one zero two three fly by in your proxy traffic when you're doing testing, you might try to iterate that number up one or down one and see if you can access somebody else's order data. And these are things that are very simple, but no framework can protect against completely uh, because they're logical and they're, they're ways the applications are referencing referencing user accounts and stuff like that. So there are manifestations of that very simple example that are much more complicated, complicated and convoluted. But those are usually what I look for on a uh, on like an advanced platform because I know they've taken care of um, the OWASP top 10 type vulnerabilities, code injection and stuff like that. If it's an older organization, the site is written in an older language and I have a feeling that they're not, you know, up to date on, you know, protecting against the OWASP top 10 categories, I test for those first. SQL injection, cross-site scripting, um, local file includes, command injection. These are all staples that we've had for about 10 years now. They still exist because security is hard and that'll be what I focus on. So it really depends on the target, I think. I think a lot of people test like that. The other common nomenclature of being a researcher is the deeper you get, the more of a power user you are with an application, the more likely you are to find a critical vulnerability. You know, like if I use you know, Zencaster or some app, right, and I'm a power user of it, I know where all the features are or something like that, you know, I can uh, better better get deep in that application. We're on Zencaster. Um, anything uh, striking your uh, interest? You know, I haven't opened up the um, traffic yet. You know, I would look at Zencaster and think that, you know, a lot of people want to use this for podcasts. And, you know, when you threat model something like this, it's, uh, you know, there's there's a chat associated to it. So I would try some injection there, some see if I could cross-site script the other users of the chat. Um, I would see if I could identify where each user was connecting from via IP range, uh, mm-hmm. if I could you know, if some podcasts were meant to be anonymous to bring anonymous guests on, I would try to see if I could unmask their location via their IPs. Right. Um, it looks like a lot. There's a lot of rich web functionality here that you could dig into. Well, there's also this function where it's making a local recording on your system and then uploading it to the platform for me to download. That would seem to me to be an opportunity, maybe to do something funky. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> see, you think like a hacker already. See, there it. we go. Right. Yeah. Okay, thanks very much for that analysis. <laughs> One of the things that uh, BugCrowd is is doing now, in, in addition to the course that you're offering, is you're you're working with Cal Poly uh, University on some course material on some offerings, also around vulnerability testing, um, uh, vulnerability research. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, so uh, Cal Poly has a a very unique um, kind of program going on there, uh, and so. Honestly, I can't remember how we first got introduced to each other, but I'm very glad that it happened. I took a trip out there. What they have is this cyber range at Cal Poly, which um, I haven't seen many of these things exist. Yeah. What they're doing right now is is basically the cyber range. They've been granted this land from the Army Reserve with the, you know, I think the condition that they are um, they're helping train law enforcement on forensic and cyber operations, like anything to do with cyber, if, whether it's pen testing, whether it's forensics, whether it's you know threat hunting, like. Whatever, whatever people can use in you know, law enforcement and government, um, they'll come and take classes that Cal Poly is instituting through the cyber range, as well as Cal Poly has the White Hats group, which is a group of students who are learning ethical hacking and having meetups, uh, very similar to what a lot of universities do. And so I went out there and toured that program. I mean, they had uh, they had simulation rooms of, you know, really, you know, really important things like, you know, abduction and 
human trafficking, and they had built elaborate stages with the um, theater department at Cal Poly to simulate what uh, what it looks like when you're in law enforcement and you stumble upon this or you're raiding one of these places for the greater good and trying to you know make sure this doesn't happen and how to collect digital evidence from a crime scene, how to spot fishy things, you know, things that will like uh, alert your presence to the people who are operating the thing. Huh. Uh, and then also they had that for not just human trafficking, but for a whole bunch of different scenarios. And so that was really cool. They had built a security-based escape room as well with a whole bunch of puzzles security related. They ran a, a large structure, captured the flag event for students and, and surrounding faculty at one point. And that was really cool. And then the classes that they're offering in conjunction with us are building things like AppSec courses, and um, and we're even going to have an event out there pretty soon that we'll be announcing for hacking IoT devices. Uh, basically, routers or cameras or um, any type of either consumer level or prosumer level device, um, we might be coming out there um, and setting up a test bed and bringing some researchers out and having also those students and faculty set up a giant event around uh, a bounty around this. I thought I'd ask you, I mean, we seem like there's a fair amount of friction going on that I kind of I thought we had put this issue to bed, but we saw it come up with the conflict between uh, Google's Project Zero and the folks at Fortnite, um, Epic Games, who makes a Fortnite, um, about some disclosures that Google did on problems with the Android version of Fortnite, uh, which which Epic chose to release outside of the kind of Google Play ecosystem. And uh, Epic felt like their the disclosure of those vulnerabilities was not handled properly. I thought I'd ask you guys, because you, you're dealing with this all the time on behalf of your customers, um, what you thought of that, you know, it seemed we'd, we'd kind of reached just consensus about disclosure and maybe people are starting to push that envelope a little bit more? I don't know. What are your thoughts? Uh, I have a lot of respect for the people on the Project Zero team. Um, I think that they're some of, if not the best hackers that I've you know, ever looked at work of, of done. So I'll start off with that. And no I doubt. That no doubt. I do know from you know working with BugCrowd that the disclosure timeline that they institute is uh, it's kind of the dream for everybody. Not not a dream in a bad way, but it's like it's like what everybody aspires to is being able to respond to a critical vulnerability within that timeline. And it may seem like giving somebody a lot of time to remediate a bug and uh, and coordinate a disclosure. But for some organizations who are, you know, older and old school and, um, and just don't have moving parts that move quickly, um, that is you know, on the short side, honestly. And so I've, I've actually been a part of organizations like that before and uh, really tried to work with security researchers and, and public disclosure and stuff like that. So um, so I know both sides of the coin, I think. And I think they realize that too, that they're trying to move the industry towards is, is something better, a better standard, like you said. And I think that's noble. Um, I also think that one size never fits all. And I actually think they've given extensions to people before looking at their, um, you know, the bug tracker that they have open when the issues make it to the public. Um, they've actually given extensions for big issues before. So I think it's still working itself out. If you, if you think about Project Zero, it really hasn't been around that long in the overall picture of, you know, how long a security has been around and, and disclosure as far as what a, an acceptable timeline is. And, you know, everybody's still working on that. We're working on that, on that here at BugCrowd. Google's obviously wants to push towards their vision of what it looks like. The unsimple answer is that it, you know, it, it doesn't always fit uh, one perfect vision of how one of these disclosures go on. I think a lot of people looked at it more cynically in, uh, as, oh, you know, because Epic didn't want to go through Google Play and obviously they have millions of users, so they arguably don't don't need Google Play to get noticed. But, you know, because they tried to step around Google Play, you know, Google 
weaponized Project Zero to find, <laughs> you know, uh, nasty vulnerabilities and flaws in their Android version of their game and, and gave them a black eye in terms of public relations. Do you worry about that or do you think that that is simply just, you know, No, I don't, I don't <laughs> worry about it. I, I think that's a, that's a funny conjecture. I think, honestly, what would be a, um, a more accurate thing would be like, you know, probably, you know, the staff at at Project Zero and Google in general probably play Fortnite, right? <laughs> like, and thought it would be a cool idea to do some yeah. research on Fortnite. It probably didn't have anything to do with reprisal against being on the Android store or not, right? Like, uh, I, we're all nerds, right? So I know a, a large percentage of us play Epic Games. So, uh, yeah, it makes more sense to me. Yeah, exactly, right? It would make sense to me that um, that would be an interesting target. And uh, mobile is something that they're very, very good at there and have a lot of experience with. You know, they instituted, you know, and I'm sure Project Zero members have worked on that bouncer um, app store type, um, you know, like security filter that, you know, uh, vets out malware from the store before it even gets published. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that uh, it was just happenstance. And that's a, a conclusion that a lot of people are jumping to. OK, here's the other question. Do you think the researchers yeah, did yeah. one of the Fortnite dance when they found that vulnerability? <laughs> I don't know what emote they were going <laughs> to use, but uh, yeah, probably. All of those researchers on that team are, are ninjas. In fact, I had, a, I had a buddy who interviewed for that team quite a while ago, and he is one of the best exploit writers that I've ever met in my career. Uh, and he didn't make the cut um, for Google Project Zero. And uh, it was just barely. It was very just barely that he didn't make the cut. But, um, but yeah, so I have nothing but respect for them. And I imagine that they're trying to do the best they can and for the, for the greater good. And so whenever I go into talking about something with them, I... Um, I just have to think about it from both sides. That team is is doing tremendous things and has gotten companies actually in the past who were not uh, not good at disclosure or didn't want to do any disclosure. Um, their methods have forced an industry change in, in them and their peers. It has a residual effect of other companies being like, well, we don't want to be Project Zero, so like, <laughs> let's really pay attention to how we do disclosure and what our timeline yeah. is. And is it a verb now? Have people? Is it a verb? Is it? Yes, it is. At what our offices is getting Project Project Zero Zero is definitely a thing. So you guys, on that point, I mean, you, BugCrowd, has been working with Disclose.io. Talk a little bit about that, kind of to the point of companies that might not have their stuff together when it comes to Disclosure. Disclose.io is sort of a a helping hand that way. Disclose.io is is a combination of work by Amit Elazari and um, Casey Ellis, our, our founder and CTO, um, and then some verbiage by some partners of ours and some amalgamation of the bounty brief terms that we already had. Um, but mostly Amit's uh, very hard work who, is, who has done some great stuff for the bounty industry. But basically I, is that uh, in the past, security researchers have had to be af- afraid of, that as soon as they disclose a vulnerability, either to the public or either directly to a company, that their response would be, we're going to slap you with legal action and, and sometimes very aggressive legal action. And this is sometimes for just finding a vulnerability, not even just searching out for it, but reporting a vulnerability on a product that you use. So uh, Disclose.io is a project that uh, basically creates these legal templates or has created these legal templates that are open source to use on GitHub. You can copy and paste them into your bounty or responsible disclosure page. Um, and they offer safe harbor and fair terms and conditions to researchers on that program. And they basically guarantee that no legal action will be taken by the company against the researcher in good faith research as long as they're testing the targets that are in scope for the project. And so really, you know, this was multiple rounds of review with the meets and making sure that this is great. And the first company 
to really adopt them um, was Dropbox when it wasn't a project yet. And then we were like, well, if people are going to adopt our verbiage and Amit's um, recommendations, like let's let's make it a real thing. So we launched Disclose.io with all these templates free for anybody to use. They can grab them. Several companies have implemented them already into their vulnerability disclosure programs. And it's, it's really helping researchers feel more safe to publish their security research or um, submit to bounties or responsible disclosure programs. And uh, the story I have here was I actually was using a site to order uh, some gaming peripherals, uh, some headphones. You know, I was looking for the best wireless headphones that existed and uh, for gaming. And so I was I was ordering and I had picked my vendor and I was ordering and on, and on the last step I had already ordered, you know, I saw the button that said, let's track your order. Uh, click here. So I clicked the button and in the URL, I saw the exact vulnerability I told you about <laughs> earlier. I saw that it said like order, order ID, you know, long number. And I was like, oh no, this is going to be bad. <laughs> so I decremented the ID by one and I got somebody else's order page, which had their credit card information, their address, their products, they ordered everything. <laughs> Um, and so at this point, like, you know, I'm a security guy, I'm on this platform, I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty well respected. It's kind of like any vulnerability that an English major could figure out is probably a bad vulnerability. Probably a bad <laughs> one, yeah. And so at this point, you know, I have a moral dilemma. Um, do I report this to them? Of course I want to report it to them, right? It's a, it's a company I'm using, they have my data already, but there's the real fear in my heart at this point that, you know, they could send a cease and desist, they could send legal people after me, and they didn't have a bug bounty or vulnerability disclosure program page for them at all. Um, and so... Uh, the first hurdle was finding someone who cared, right? I went through customer support. I went through their call center. I, uh, or customer support on their website, I went through their call center. And then eventually I had to resort to looking up on LinkedIn, the individuals who worked in IT at this company and spamming them and having to write this big precursor paragraph being like, my name is Jason Haddix. Like I work for HP. I am, uh, I'm a respected security researcher. This is not like a spam email. I'm a, you know, I use your website. I found this vulnerability. I'm trying to find someone to give it to who works at security at your company um, so that they can handle it. I'm not asking for anything. This isn't like a, you know, like any, like any kind of extortion or extortion. Anything like that. Yeah, just, yeah. 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 I'm just trying to report it to you. And after a couple of days, I did get in contact with, you know, system admin who worked kind of security. And then um, I was able to report to him. And, and this one ended out okay, right? They didn't nuke me from orbit. They didn't send the legal team after me. They actually sent me a pair of free headphones and a, and a custom backpack, which I was very thankful for. Very cool. And it went well, but it could have easily gone very badly. And it could have gone badly from yeah, their standpoint yeah. as well. So really interesting. Uh, right now, we're in outreach mode, right? We're, we're trying to grow the hacker scene. We're trying to steer it in the right direction. We're definitely trying to educate um, and get more people into this. Uh, you know, obviously, that serves our researcher pool, but, um, but really, it's just a good thing for technology in general, honestly. The more people who know how to do this work, the better. So, Jason Haddix of uh, BugCrowd, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us on the Security Ledger. Thanks so much for having me. Jason Haddix is the Vice President of Trust and Security at BugCrab. Up next, in California, a bill to set cybersecurity standards for web-connected devices like thermostats and webcams cruised through the state legislature and is now awaiting a signature from Governor Jerry Brown. The bill would make California the first state to pass legislation specifically to govern security on the Internet of Things. Outside of the Golden State, however, progress towards IoT security standards has been slow. Part of the reason is the complexity of Internet of Things ecosystems. The other reason that 
that IoT security is so hard is that good information on how to secure Internet of Things ecosystems is hard to come by. But a new program from the Internet Society is trying to bridge the information gap. It's called Get IoT Smart, and its aim is to educate both device manufacturers and end users, both businesses and consumers, about what makes an Internet of Things device secure or insecure. To talk about the new program, we invited Jeff Wilbur, the director of the Online Trust Association, which is part of the Internet Society, into the Security Ledger Studios. I started by asking Jeff to tell us a little bit about the new Get IoT Smart program and how it's intended to work. I'm Jeff Wilbur, Technical Director of the Online Trust Alliance Initiative at the Internet Society. We're talking because the Online Trust Alliance, which is now part of the Internet Society, launched a program, Get IoT Smart, which is really about kind of educating the public and also the market about Internet of Things security. So I thought I'd get you on the line, Jeff, and say, what's this program about? Get IoT Smart is the hashtag, but what's behind it? The program is really kind of a combination of a number of efforts that we've initiated this year around IoT security and privacy. Uh, It's all based on the Online Trust Alliance uh, IoT Trust Framework that was developed a few years ago. I believe we've talked to you about that before. Uh, It's a list of principles that manufacturers should follow to have a sufficient level of security and privacy in their product, but it can also be applied different ways. It can be used by distributors or retailers to be a filter to what they carry so that they're only carrying products that have sufficient security and privacy. It can be used by consumer organizations or consumer testing organizations as kind of a filter for what, you know, what's the right level and what should be in there and and help them inform consumers about the product. And then finally, the principles that are in there can be used to help policymakers figure out what the right balance is and how to affect policy or regulation related to these devices. So Get IoT Smart really represents the first two of those categories that I talked about, kind of manufacturers and their distribution chain and getting them smart on what sufficient levels of security and privacy are and also the consumer angle. So we released some checklists for consumers who are buying products, checklists for enterprises who are using consumer-grade IoT in the enterprise. It reflects kind of its own special case because they kind of come in under the radar and often controlled by IT, and, and then as well as manufacturers for the just informing them the right principles for security and privacy. And we should probably back up a step uh, for, for folks who don't know about the Online Trust Alliance. Um, tell us just a little bit about OTA, who's in it, so who, as you guys are releasing these guidelines, who is behind this? The OTA was a nonprofit for about 10 years focused on best practices for online trust in mainly security and privacy areas and, and things that touch that. And, and a little over a year ago, we rolled into the Internet Society as an initiative. So we still do uh, a lot of that work. Some of it was focused on IoT, as we're talking about here. Another one of our major uh, deliverables each year is a, uh, an audit of the top thousand Uh, sites, retail government, uh, news and media sites, banking on their practices related to online trust, like their site security, their email security, and their privacy practices. Is there any evidence to to suggest that things are getting better out there, either in the consumer space or in the sort of manufacturing, industrial, critical infrastructure space? Awareness is higher now than it has been. I think there are more and more cases of either actual you know, vulnerabilities that can be exploited or have been exploited and, and are getting a lot of attention, as you said, kind of headline-making issues. Just, you know, in the last month, they found uh, malware that had infected 
hundreds of thousands of routers, and the FBI asked everyone to reset their routers. Uh, and that was more for that they could be utilized as a botnet to attack other parts of the Internet, like the Dyna, uh, the Dyna attack or the, from late 2016. So that continues to happen, and even some of the, the top products are finding that you know, it's easy to triangulate the information to figure out your location uh, and some other things that are very sensitive. Fortunately, most of these products are patchable and software updates come out very quickly, usually actually in advance of public knowledge of these vulnerabilities. And that's one of the key principles in our framework is that products should be updatable because you, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. We all take for granted the power we have in our smartphones and our laptops without us even being involved in them. But a lot of the IoT products are designed with much less computing resource involved, and so they may or may not be capable of keeping pace with updates over a period of years. So that's one of the important considerations. Yeah, the framework is really uh, great. And, and if listeners haven't checked out the IoT Trust Framework, I would encourage you to do that at the internetsociety.org. Um, but you do talk a lot about kind of full the full life cycle of devices, not only uh, manufacturing and design, but also provisioning and deprovisioning devices, uh, updating them, and so on. What traction do you think this framework is getting out there in the marketplace amongst either companies making consumer devices or industrial devices? And uh, is it the case that IoT Trust Framework is being adopted whole cloth or that it is part of a brew of different standards that uh, device makers might be looking at and considering? There are a number of, of different frameworks, so to speak, or similar approaches out there. Some have been put forth by governments, like the UK did one earlier this year. It had 13 principles, I believe, but if you read through those, it overlaps about 30 of the 40 that we have. Uh, there's uh, ANISA, which is a European information security organization, has a security-focused framework with almost 90 principles in it. So there are a number of different efforts going on out there. They all have kind of a common core, you might say, where a lot of overlap in the middle, and then they might be different kind of around the edges. So I think in that sense, the whole thing is building momentum. There's more and more attention on it. It may, I don't think it has to be one framework or another um, that sort of has to be the, the default or the winning one, if you think of it that way. It's the principles contained in those frameworks, especially the ones that are, are common, need to be adopted. One point you made earlier, which makes our framework somewhat unique, is we do take that life cycle into account. Uh, something like handing off a smart home. You know, selling a house used to be a garage door opener and a door key, and now it might be a dozen smart device accounts. Same thing with automobiles, right? Also one where you need to really think about deprovisioning them and, and passing them along to the next owner. I read a really interesting article within the last couple of days talking about looking at the at you know hospitals and healthcare facilities and talking about the fact that often you know, cybersecurity is is not really part of purchasing decisions made for medical devices and so on. That you know, cybersecurity is not necessarily part of the checklist that uh, you know buyers are making when they're evaluating uh, one solution next to the, next to uh, another. How do you how do you change that, and and how do you sort of um, put pressure from the buyer side, from the market side, to companies to clean up their act? Yeah, it's a good. Question. It's part of why we're trying to do this all in parallel. We see with these three audiences, the manufacturers and, and their, their distributors potentially, and then the, the consumers themselves and the policymakers, 
Um, we do focus more on the consumer side because some of those other markets are either more regulated, like medical devices, although that's still a huge issue, right, that you just pointed out, or the automobile industry. Or in industrial applications, there's usually a project management of some kind that should be taking these things into account. We really want to kind of focus on educating all three of those audiences sort of, they can build up with each other on a circle. Users can start to demand, I want better privacy, but policymakers have a role here too. We're starting to see some new being put on the table that at least establish minimum guidelines for IoT devices. For instance, that they don't have hard-coded passwords, that they're software updatable and that kind of thing, which is, you know, you would call it barely table stakes uh, in a security sense, but at least it's moving in the right direction. So they can all kind of help each other move uh, upward because there's a great opportunity here in the market and there are so many great applications for IoT products. You don't want it to be stifled by a, you know, a huge problem that happens uh, too late for people to recover, uh, but you also don't want it to be stifled by too much restriction up front uh, that stifles innovation. So it's, it's really striking the right balance. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned legislative front. Uh, there was a bill uh, proposed last year by Senator Warner to address IoT security. I was kind of looking around before I before we spoke, and, and I don't see an updated version of it. So that one seems to have kind of died in committee. Um, and um, uh, in some ways, I, I wonder if the conversation has kind of moved on. But um, I know you guys do a lot of work on Capitol Hill. Uh, is there any hope for any kind of a legislative or policy fix for these issues? Well, I think there, there certainly can be. And I, again, there is more attention on this. Unfortunately, sometimes the regulatory attention or the legislative attention comes in after there's been a huge problem. And then sometimes when, when the uh, after effects of that, the headlines of that go away, then people move on to other priorities. But I think there is some smart, balanced legislation that can happen, and I, I think it will over time. We're starting to see a little more of that in, in different countries around the world, at least proposals. Like the, the UK thing I mentioned, it's being put out as a code of conduct for the manufacturers, but it's right behind it, and it got some criticism for not having enough teeth in it. But right behind it, the government is saying, hey, if we don't see some movement here, then we may have to make this a legislative thing versus a voluntary code of conduct. So uh, if you're listening to this podcast and uh, curious about Get IoT Smart or any of the OTA stuff, um, Jeff, what should our listeners do and how can they interact or engage with Online Trust Alliance and Internet Society on these issues? The best way really is to just go to the website at internetsociety.org slash IoT is kind of the holding place for everything. There also is a hashtag Get IoT Smart. You can find a, a link that way on a search. Um, so that's probably the best place to do it. And in each of those things, there are links depending on uh, which audience uh, you represent of how to get engaged and contact us uh, to either be involved in the process of the you know creating and and sort of evolving the framework, or manufacturers were actually act, asking them to publicly commit to the framework. It's kind of started that effort. You've got a great checklist, and you've got a quiz that you can take online right. to see if you're IoT smart. I will say that I took it, and unfortunately, I'm only an IoT learner. <laughs> <laughs> I did not get 100%, even though I write about this topic 24-7. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I took it myself, and I think my first pass, I was also just an IoT learner because I wasn't reading the answers 
the multiple choice answers. Probably. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Wilbur of Internet Society and Online Trust Alliance, thanks so much for coming in and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. Jeff Wilbur is the director at the Internet Society's Online Trust Association. He was in the studio to talk with us about the OTA's new Get IoT Smart program.